pray together. Holy Father, I thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to stand before these, your people, and to preach your word. I realize that this is a gift. And Lord, I'm thankful that uh, the invitation has been extended, and I'm thankful that you have entrusted me for this moment. But Lord, my desire is to preach from the overflow of being filled with your spirit. I pray that you would grant me your unction. My desire is not for eloquence. My desire is to preach. And that God, I know that when we are faithful to your word, that you will faithfully attend to the preaching of your word. Lord, remind us this very day that there are souls even now who are dying. Even now as we pray, there are souls entering into a Christless eternity, entering into hell. And I pray that our hearts would be broken for them and that it would be reflected in how we pray, how we preach, how we live, how we interact with the community, how we study, how we read, where we go and what we say. I pray for the reality of every damned soul. I pray that that reality would be so pressed upon us that their damnation would be so real that we would see it as our own damnation so that above and before all else that we would seek to win them for your glory in Jesus name I pray amen I'd like to invite you this morning to open your Bibles to 1st Kings chapter 17 1st Kings chapter 17 I think it goes without saying that I'm truly grateful for this opportunity this morning to stand before you as, uh, as a co-heir in Christ, as one who has been redeemed by the blood, forgiven by grace. I'm thankful for the opportunity to stand before you simply as a messenger, a voice, an instrument that God has chosen to use for His glory. And I'm thankful for this moment, and I'm thankful that you're here. Our text will today, the main body of this message is going to be found in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 17 and following. So let's read there. The scripture says, after the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah... What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms, and he carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and he laid him on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, 
Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, and he cried to the Lord. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he was revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and he delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and it's truth. This was the ambition that compelled Wesley through a devoted life of gospel preaching. It's what gave birth to Whitfield's fiery zeal that sent him down the land and across the sea to preach the gospel. It was the passion that burned within the breast of Roland Hill for which people called him a madman. It was this that drove Robert McCall from his beautiful English home to the slums of Paris. It was this very thing that sustained David Brainerd through a life of hardship and toil and sickness. It's what drove him through sleepless nights of cold and rain while coughing up blood. It is what compelled him to win the lost. It was the very thing that gave William Carey the passion to be spent in reaching souls in India. What is it? What is it that compelled these men, compelled women like Lottie Moon? What, what, what was it? Travail. Travail. That is a word that's been lost in our contemporary vernacular. Perhaps some of you have never even heard of the word travail, or if you have heard of it, maybe you don't know what it means. What does it mean? What does it mean to travail over souls? What does it mean to, and let's make it more personal, what does it mean to travail over a soul? Let's define the word. To travail, literally, it means a painful and laborious effort, a mental and physical exertion. So in light of this morning's message, which is entitled, Travailing Over a Soul. In light of this message, what does it mean to travail over a soul? It means to give forth a painful and laborious effort to the point of mental and physical exhaustion for a soul. So with that being said, let me ask you, beloved... When was the last time you travailed over a soul? 
Have you ever travailed over a soul? Have you ever found your place, found yourself in a place where you have agonized to the point of mental, emotional, and physical exhaustion? A point where it's almost like a, it's almost like a a joyous misery. It's a gut-wrenching feeling to, to pray so fervently for someone who is lost. As I was thinking about this message, I have to admit that as I was praying to God and talking to the Lord, I said, Lord, I find myself in one of those positions again where I'm having to describe something that I, that I, I don't know too well myself. I have travailed over souls. I have travailed over a soul. But for me, for me, it's something I've experienced only a few times. There are men like David Brainerd who lived their short lives. Their whole life was characterized by travailing for souls. And there are many today and whose lives are, their whole life is characterized by travailing for souls. But I, in, in my experience, I have found it to be something that I must fight for, something I, I must yearn for, something I must constantly seek God for. It's something that I desire every day. And I, and I truly, by God's grace, hope to pursue every day. I believe that we will never hear what I'm about to say. I believe that you, I'm going to make it personal. I, won't, I believe that you will never prevail in winning souls until you travail over a soul. We come to this morning's passage of Scripture, and it's right in the middle of Ahab's reign. <laughs> Here's Elijah. In the midst of paganism, in the midst of Baalism, he comes to the king and prophesies that there's going to be a drought. We see the omnipotence of God as he immediately has his prophet go into the wilderness to the brook of Kareth, where there the providence of God provides for him through supernatural means and we see God there and specifically when you look at verses 1 through 7 you see God uh, keeping his prophet isn't it good to know that God keeps his prophets so God keeps his prophet and through his omnipotence he he provides for his prophet feeding for him from ravens he's not there long before God moves him to Zarephath where he encounters a widow with a young son the narrator does a great job of highlighting the poverty of the woman when we read such things as verse 10 so when he arose and went to Zarephath and he came to the gate of the city behold a widow was there gathering sticks The scripture says, and he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And she was going to bring it. And he called and he said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. 
And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And once again, God demonstrates his omnipotence in the midst of a pagan world, a pagan culture, by once again providing, providing for his prophet. Baal is not the one who provides. Yahweh is the one who provides. Baal is not omnipotent. Yahweh is omnipotent. And we know the story, or at least I hope you do, that God miraculously allows the flower to have no end and the oil to have no end. God has demonstrated his faithfulness to Elijah, and now God is demonstrating his faithfulness not only to Elijah once again, but also to the widow and her son. But now something occurs. We move into verse 17, where we just read a few moments ago, and all of a sudden what happens? In the midst of all this, her son dies. She interprets this possibility, which is common in this culture. She interprets this as, as a punishment, perhaps for a sin that she had committed. And she questions whether or not Elijah himself is the instrument of that punishment. Elijah himself even seems to have a moment of struggle. When he says in verse 20, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? But yet he remains faithful to the Lord. And we look in this passage of Scripture and notice what we see. We see a prophet who ultimately travails over a dead child. The child is dead. There's heartache. There's pain. The widow comes to Elijah and presents the dead child. And there is Elijah. And what does he say? Elijah says, give me, give me your son. He's there with the widow. He's there among the dead child, with the dead child. And he says, give me the child. And then he takes the ch child into the upper chamber and he lays him on the bed. And then Elijah begins to cry out to God. He begins to weep over the dead child. And then he begins to prostrate himself over the child, not once, not twice, but three times, crying out to the Lord, weeping over the child for life to come back into the child. And I love that verse where it says, and God did what? God listened to the voice of Elijah. As he prayed, and as he wept, and as he cried out, and as he lay himself on the floor, and prostrating himself over the child, and, and pleading with God for life to come back into the child. Do you see his travail? And God answers. And God revives the child. And Elijah takes the child, and he brings the child to his mother and he presents the child alive. 
And in this passage of scripture, we, we see something that I find to be very interesting. We know that this is not Elijah's first interaction with the woman. We know that. His first interaction with the woman is through the miraculous provision of the flour and the oil. But it was not, oh, please hear this, but it was not until she saw his concern for the dead that she said, now I know that you are a man of God. It's not your degrees that make you a man or woman of God. It's not the position that you hold in a church that makes you a man or woman of God. It's the passion that you have for souls that makes you a man or woman of God. And let me say to you, in all respect, if you hold to a theology that leads you not to have a burden for souls, you either need to reevaluate your theological stance or you need to jettison the cargo. Because any theological belief that does not lead you to have a burden for souls, that does not motivate you to travail over souls, any theological belief that does not lead you to win souls is not from heaven, it's from hell. For that is why we are here. Blood-bought, born again, and dwelt with the Spirit of God, entrusted with the gospel for the purpose of winning souls. And so let me just share with you, for those of you who perhaps like to take points, I, I see these merely as observations in the passage. Let me just say this. As, as Elijah worked with a dead child, we have the same responsibility given to us to work among those who are spiritually dead. So what can we gain from this passage in respect to travailing over a soul? Let me just say this. First of all, if you're going to travail over a lost soul, you've got to be among the lost. Elijah said, give me. Why was he able to say give me? Because he was there. Samaria students, you are to be among the lost the moment of your conversion. And you are not to cease being among the lost until you die or until Jesus Christ returns. We are to be among the lost. You cannot travail over a soul if you are not among the lost. How can you ever expect to pluck one from the fire if you're not even willing to get close to the flame? You say, well, Pastor Gideon, how, do you, how are you among the lost? It's easy to sit in the office and study. I love to study. I have a great office for that. Books all around me. I mean, I love to study and prepare. I love to write. I love to, and it would be quite easy for me just to stay in my office. I've got plenty of staff members. You go there, you go there, you go do that. I'm going to study. I'm going to pray. But God will not let me. So what have I done? I joined a CrossFit gym. <laughs> and so let me tell you about Theban, a 23-year-old 23, a 23 
man from Malaysia, six foot five and shredded. He's my friend. He's lost. One day I asked him about his spiritual beliefs, and he said he was a Hindu. I asked him again, he told me he's a Buddhist. My hopes was one day that he'll be a Christian. Theban lets me share with him. He lets me talk to him about spiritual things. But he's my friend. And I'm his friend. And, and let me tell you about Josh. Oh, Josh is another strapping young man and full of muscles. And when he first found out that I was a preacher, he would not even look at me. In the gym, he would just walk by, and I begin to pray. Oh, God, you know that that's a young man with full of pride. You know that that's a young man who has a hard heart. And, God, I need you. I need you to begin to soften his heart so that I can be his friend. And do you know that God is answering that prayer? Josh and I talk almost every week. We talk he shares what's going on in his life. We spend time together. He went from saying all types of blasphemy and curse words around me to now, and I haven't said anything, just, just being who I am, to the point now where he watches his tongue without me even saying a word. You see, God's at work. He went from being a hard-hearted person who would not even look at me to my friend. How many of you have lost friends? I'm not talking about acquaintances. I'm talking about they come to your house and hang out. So let me tell you about a niche. A cardiologist from India. As lost as the day is long. He comes to my house every Sunday after church and we work out together in my garage. And I tell him, Anish, before we work out, we're going we're gonna to pray. And guess what I pray? We circle hands. We grab hands. Oh, oh, God, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, who left the glories of heaven and clothed in human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, obeyed the law of God perfectly, and who went to the cross and died in our place, dying as our substitute, and who was buried and rose again on the third day, who ascended into heaven and rules and reigns right now from the right hand of God, and one day is coming back, and all those, he's coming back for all those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And let me tell you about Blake and Amber. They're about to have their first baby. And my wife and I are already making plans to be there with them, to bring them a basket. They have no family around. He's in the Air Force. I could go on and on, but the time is short. I could tell you about Miss Dennis, an elderly woman who's lost. I'd been trying to win her to the Lord for, for uh, uh, years, and I couldn't get through to her. One day she became sick and it looked like she was going to die. So I went to the hospital to visit her and she didn't have her hearing aids in so she couldn't hear me. So I'm like, Miss Dennis, huh? Miss Dennis, huh? Miss Dennis, huh? And I, so, I don't want to scream because I don't want to blow you out of here, but just imagine me screaming. Miss Dennis, do you know where you're going to go when you die? No. Can I share with you? Yes. Miss Dennis, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Miss Dennis, you know you're a sinner. Yes. Miss Dennis, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And I'll just save you the time. I went through the Roman road with her. I was screaming this out because she couldn't hear me. Her door was wide open in the hospital room. She prays and she gives her, Lord, her life to Jesus Christ. I'm leaving. Listen, it gets better. I'm leaving. I'm walking out the door. I hear, preacher. <laughs> preacher. 
It's the room next door to Miss Dennis. And there was an elderly lady in there who heard me preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with Miss Dennis, and she said, I want to give my heart to Jesus too. Listen, those things don't happen unless you're among them. You got to be among the lost. Elijah said, give me the child. Not only was he among them, not only was Elijah among the lost, well, among the dead, he was what? Weeping over the dead. crying out listen to me if you want the lost to be saved there must be a warm place in your heart for them he he wept this is what it means to travail to weep over the lost to weep over those who are spiritually dead my own mother wept for my salvation for 24 years I was saved when I was 24 years old. I can remember when I was 18, I was walking out the door to go to hang out with my buddies, to go party. My mother knew what I was going to do, and she said, I wish you wouldn't go. And I was arrogant and lost. I made some type of sarcastic remark, smart aleck remark. And she said to me, I want you to know that when you were a baby... I lifted you up before the Lord and prayed that God would turn you into a preacher. Later on, I found out she got that from Roots, you know, when, she, when he held up the baby. And it's, I said, where'd you get that from? She goes, I, was, I just watched Roots. <laughs> and I laughed in my mother's face and walked out of the door. 24 years, she wept over my soul. She travailed over my soul. I even would read her prayer journals at time when I was lost, and I would see where she was praying for my salvation. And God, by his grace, took my heart as a result of her prayers, as a result of her travailing. And he broke my heart and broke me of pride and drew me to himself. And by the grace of Almighty God, on April the 14th of the year 2000, in Hugo, Oklahoma, I walked to the preacher's door and said, I need to be saved. We've got to weep over the lost. We've got to be among the lost. Thirdly, we never give up on the lost. He didn't prostrate himself upon the, Dr. Patterson, he didn't prostrate himself one time. The child didn't revive after the first, nor the second time. It was the third time. Don't never give up. I can remember travailing in prayer over my cousin who was living a life of drug addiction and sexual immorality. And I just began to pray and I began to call out to God. And I was pastoring my first church in southern part of Oklahoma, 20 miles from the closest town, right in the middle of a cow pasture. Farmers and ranchers consisted of the congregation. There was about 45, 50 of us. And I travailed, and I prayed over his soul. And I listened. I got to a point where I basically was giving up. And one Sunday as I was preaching, he came in the back door in the middle of the sermon, walked the aisle, fell on his knees, and began to weep. I immediately went into the invitation, and my cousin on that day gave his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. God worked through travail. Laborious effort 
of mental and physical exhaustion and going after the lost and weeping over the lost and never giving up on the lost. Today, he is leading his family. He's free from drugs. He's a spiritual leader of his home. And he's raising his children to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let me say to you, to travail for the lost, you've got to be among them. You've got to weep over them and you never give up on them. I quote from a great sermon by Dr. Scarborough. He says, I appeal to you to win souls, and this appeal comes from above. God calls with fatherly love. Christ pleads with a Redeemer's compassion, and the Holy Spirit urges with constant intercessory. Nor does it come from above, it comes from the beneath. For the doomed in hell, for those who will spend an eternity in hell away from the Lord, they anxiously plead to you to go after their relatives. So not only does the pill come from heaven, the pill comes from the depths. And those who are already in hell are pleading to us to go to their relatives, to go to their parents, to go to their children, to go into the marketplace, to go wherever the Lord leads us, and to share the good news that Jesus Christ saves because and listen the, the appeal comes from within any person who's born again has a passion for souls the question is whether or not you're suppressing that passion and the call comes from without those who are not in hell but those who are doomed to hell those who are beside us every day the call comes from them you may not hear it verbally but you see it in the life that they live you see it in their lostness you see it in their hopelessness Dr. Scarborough said, to live in a world filled with unsaved and not try to win them to Christ, to be saved by God's free grace and to go meet him with no sheaves, nothing but leaves, a barren life, a crownless life, this is an unspeakable, horrible thing to do. You can do better. Win some. Begin today. <laughs> That's good. Dr. Truett said, the supreme ambition for every Christian individual is to win someone to Christ. It is the supreme ambition. I had Dr. Patterson years ago, he may not even remember, preach at my church in Idabel, First Baptist Idabel, and you preached on the Hebrew midwives. And I will never forget the application of that message. And I give it to you. You pray starting today, you pray starting today, and for the rest of your life, you pray three things every day for the rest of your life. Lord, give me somebody to witness to. And Lord, make me aware of it when you do. And Lord, give me the courage to carry it through. I've never forgotten that. There are many worthy pursuits in life. There are many desires which to clean. But there's only one passion for the blood-bought heart. Only one. And that is to win souls by travailing over a soul. Would you say with me this morning, would you say, Pastor Gideon, I desire to travail. To be among them, to weep over them, to never give up on them. I, I pray and I plead for that travailing passion to burn within my heart. 
I pray that my life's ambition would be to win souls for the glory of God. If that's you, would you just stand to your feet right now? If that's you, and you say, this is my desire, this is my passion, this is what I want, oh God, grant me a spirit of travail. Oh God, grant me that joyous misery. I don't know how else to describe it. That joyous misery of laboring for those who are lost. Holy Father, you see these people standing. And Lord, we pray to you that you would help us to travail. That the very beat of our heart would be to win souls. That above all else, Lord, starting now, that we would all pray. Oh God, break my heart for the lost. Help me to see them with your eyes and to fill for them with your heart. Consume me with a desire for their salvation. Help me to call them out by name. And Lord, I pray for Theban. I pray for Josh. I pray for Blake and Amber. I pray for Shane. I pray for Anish. And Lord, I pray for their salvation. And Lord, I conclude by praying for myself and for these here today. Oh God, give us somebody to witness to today. Make us aware of it when you do, and give us the courage to carry it through. Amen.